Um, we've been in Acts chapter 4, and uh, it's good, and I just want to warn you in advance, um, I'm, I'm, this message today is supposed to end with a hammer. I mean, I'm bringing it, okay? So you pre- <laughs> prepare your spirit now uh, to receive that. Uh, that is not an excuse for you to put up a wall and be like, okay, here it comes, right? Uh, but but uh, as we get into Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 4 and we come into Acts chapter 5, there's some very hard lessons to learn. And I have a lot to cover today, so pray for me. Uh, I need that. There we go. Yeah, bring that back. So this message is called, And Great Fear Came Upon All. So that just shows you how much trouble you're in. Okay, so be ready for that. Um, you know, we've been talking about a fearless witness in this chapter. That's been kind of the primary theme we've seen this great witness of Peter and John, and just, I don't want to belabor what we've learned in previous weeks, but it has been a couple weeks. So, you know, Peter and John, they heal this man. Um, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious order, is very frustrated and angry by that. They respond by threatening them. Uh, and so the, the, the two apostles return back uh, their, to their tribe of believers that are gathered together, and the response of those people was to pray, was to pray. And we, we learned about what it meant to have a prayerful witness. In other words, um, uh, people who are bent with the intention of sharing the gospel. And their heart's desire is to, to share the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ no matter what. There are certain things that characterize their prayer life. And we looked at that prayer life uh, just two weeks ago. And, and by way of recap, some of the things that we saw was that these believers were unified in their prayer. And we referred to this as corporate prayer. And it was brought to my attention that corporate is probably like an easy word to misunderstand. And so we can also use the word communal, right? Corporate just means the idea that people do it together. They're working together with a, with a singular objective. And so, so they met in communal prayer, unified prayer. Uh, verse 24 says, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. One accord. They were unified in their prayer. They were also worshipful in their prayer. In verse 24, the second part of that verse says, Lord, this is how they pray, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. In other words, when they prayed, they settled the matter of majesty right up front. You are our God. You made all things. Your breath sustains all life. You have the future planned and laid out. You are divine and sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing, and you've saved us from our sins, and for that we worship you. And they, So that when they prayed together, they were worshipful in their prayers. They were honest in their prayer. They were honest in their prayer. They weren't, they weren't afraid to throw a bit of a pity party in their prayer. They were, they were faced with a dilemma, with an issue. And they brought that dilemma before the Lord, knowing that He could deliver them and help them and sustain them even through the difficulties. Verse 29, they said, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Behold their threatenings. They came to the Lord and said, Look, the Sanhedrin, they hate us. They hate our message. They hate what we're doing. And it looks like they're going to come in opposition to us. They could, they could foresee what was, what was coming down the pike. And so they addressed that in their prayer. Welcome back. Um, they were also, and this was the primary focus of the entirety of their prayer, came here in the closing of the prayer. In verse 29, the second part says, And grant unto thy servants. So like with, with all of this in mind, with the threatenings in mind, and the, and the hatred, and, and the way that Satan has built up men to oppress us, Regardless of our opposition, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. I just like how that prayer, thy holy child Jesus. Such a term of endearment that they have for Christ and they know what God the Father's heart is towards his Son. But the most important thing is that God answers their prayers. That God comes to their rescue. That He's there for them when they come together and pray. He loves it when His children pray. He loves it. It's precious to Him. 
And so he's moved. And in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this testimony of their prayer. And as we continue on in this chapter, we need your help that we might see, Lord, what unity does in the midst of people who have a common objective. Lord, we want to see what should come of our unity. We want to know and be familiar with what you're doing in our midst. Lord, if we could be more like this early church, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be that way. That we would have, we would have simple hearts. That we would have common hearts. That we'd be like-minded. God, we want to, Lord, just like this church is a, a model church for us, we want to be a model church in our city. Not that anyone would know our names. Not that we would receive any glory, Lord, but that your name would receive glory. The Lord, your holy child, Jesus, that his name would be proclaimed and that our city would come to a, 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 a saving faith in your son, Jesus Christ, because of the testimony of your people. Lord, teach us today of, uh, of exactly what it means to be followers of you, to be the church. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to first look at what it means to have maturity in the midst of transition. We've talked a lot about how Acts is a book of transition. And we're going to see this book address the transitions in our personal lives, but also in our ministry. And so we're going to look at this idea of maturity in the midst of transition. Let's look at their transition uh, here in verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. And I want to point out to you the fact this idea that they were of one heart and one soul is very strange and bizarre. Okay? The idea that this group of people, this great multitude, could be singular in their focus is, is actually pretty flabbergasting. Let me point out to you why. If we look back in, uh, at verse 4 in chapter 4, it says to us that the church was growing rapidly. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Okay, so what happens here in chapter 4 is that when Peter and John heal this man and preach the gospel, 5,000 people get saved. 5,000 people are added to a multitude that were previously, in chapter 2, focused and of one accord, and they were, they were looking that God might use them for His mighty work. Now here's my point to you, is that oftentimes as we see drastic physical growth in a church, we see the vision diluted. The body grows instantly weaker in order to accommodate the growth and the change. Has anybody ever witnessed this before? You know, I, I've, I've seen churches in my life, in, in my ministry life. Um, usually, what ha- this is the way I've seen like rapid growth take place in a lot of churches. It's usually because there's a, a, a mega church nearby that splits. <laughs> That's how a lot of churches see growth. It's not through the good old-fashioned preaching of the gospel, Right? It's often a church will see growth because a church in their community has had some sort of division and all of the people scatter. And a lot of times they scatter to the church that seems the most like-minded and so they go there. And I've seen churches grow by thousands within a year. Yeah? In the, in the, the, the town, the suburb that I grew up in, this happened not too long ago. And what happens is that, that a medium-sized church that's Bible-centered that grows rapidly like that, often will accommodate the influx of people. And what happens is they'll begin to compromise. And the things that they stood strong on before, they'll begin to let go of. This is incredibly common. And this is how ministries go from being a movement of God to a machine. This is how it, this is how it often happens. They see God do something... Okay, and in the case of the church in Acts, they see a rapid growth because God does something. But here's the deal. In the testimony of Acts, we don't see the message diluted one bit. And they retain a singular focus. Right? They, don't, they, don't, they don't dissimulate in any way. They don't let go of anything. And they remain tight-fisted as it concerns their mission and their goal. You know, By contemporary standard, the addition of 5,000 people to, a, uh, to the church in Acts 
would in most cases cause more, than, more strife than rejoicing because of the strain that it would cause. So here's the question is, what is it that makes these early Christians able to grow and sustain that kind of spiritual growth and yet not falter? And so here's the question for Kaya. You know, we've seen a lot of growth, haven't we? In two years, we've, we've tripled the ministry. The ministry has grown at that level. And we've got to ask ourselves, how do we meet the needs of the flock when it seems as though nothing looks the same and we're losing our identity? I mean, there are some people in this ministry that were here three, four, five, six years ago when the identity of this ministry was being established. And a lot of times we can feel like when, when there's so much change and there's so many new faces, God, how do we keep the heartbeat that you gave us from the beginning? Anybody ever felt that way in Kaya? Right? A, a lot of our leadership should have, if you're being honest with yourself, there's moments where you felt that way. How does a ministry like ours continue to grow and retain its radical pursuit of the mission and the vision of Christ? How do we do that? Here's how we do that. The thing that made us who we are has to be the thing that sustains us. It's very, very simple. In other words, as your small group grows, and it grows uncomfortably large, as many of your small groups are, and you've got new people coming in all the time, and many of us, we don't seem to know as many people in the ministry, which is something we need to work on. Okay, is getting to know all of the people that come in and out of our ministry. The more that happens, the more we need to focus on prioritizing the common truths and the identity that brought all of us here in the first place. Like, take a moment right now. Just, just think for a moment. When you first came to Midtown Baptist Temple or you first came to Kaya. What was it that God did in your life? How is it that he brought you in? What was it that stuck out to you? Write it down. Now I want you to consider for a moment that that thing is probably the thing that you need to continue to prioritize in your own ministry work. That you need to continue to put that first In Acts, there's a few things that they had in common, okay? First, they had a common goal. They had a common goal. Acts 1.8, many of us are familiar with this passage, they had a common goal. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall, here's here's the commission here, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. They had a common goal. And the way that they retained their focus, even in the midst of growth, growth, is that they put the common goal first. They didn't forget it. They didn't forget their objective. They had a goal, and they kept that before their eyes so that they would not forget. They kept the first things first. And in the midst of radical growth, we have to keep a radical pursuit We have to remember the things that we identify ourselves with the most because I've seen some of us in ministry begin to forget those things. Your eyes get distracted. Your eyes turn to self. Your eyes turn to your own best strategy and plan for your small group or for your ministry. And you start to plan and you start to think, Hi, Laura. Sorry. I didn't see you. I love you. It's good to see you. You get distracted just like that. (laughs) And you get off the path that God set you on from the beginning and you lose your identity. What else did the church in Acts remember to do? Acts 2.42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They had a common doctrine. They had a common doctrine that they stuck to. Jesus Christ handed down to them doctrines and truths that they had to hold on to, that had to be at the center of their focus, that had to be a priority in their lives and in their ministry. And as they focused on those things, those doctrinal truths, it kept them in line. It kept them from forgetting who they were. They had a common enemy. And that was never more obvious than it was right here in, in chapter 4 when they've been threatened and they faced oppression 
they knew for sure that they had a common enemy. In Acts 2, they, they faced mockings. I don't know if you remember that. In Acts 4, they faced threatenings. By Acts chapter 7, they will face killings. And they knew, they knew that they had an enemy. And that that enemy was not their enemy. It was an enemy of the gospel. It was an enemy of the gospel. And the threatenings weren't against them. The threatenings were against the free course of God's word. They also had a common prayer life. And as we have seen here in chapter 4, the believers focused together in prayer, in communion with one another. And they were together in prayer seeking the will of God in their lives. Now this list isn't exhaustive. But it is the groundwork of who the church was and who they determined to be. And likewise, we ought to determine the same things should be true in our lives. So here's key point number one. As Kaya grows bigger, our leadership must grow more fervent and holding to our true identity. Leadership, do you agree? Okay, they refer to this as beating the drum. Right? The things that have been handed down to you, you need to hold on to. And you ought not forget, because what will happen is we'll be so focused on our growth, then we'll, we'll forget, forget the one who made things to be. We'll forget the forgiveness. We will forget the discipleship. We'll forget the groundwork. We'll forget the foundation. We'll forget the mission. And we'll lose our identity. You understand? And if we lose our identity, we will move from being a movement to a machine. We will become a machine. And in time, what happens to a machine? That's good. That was actually a very logical, very logical um, answer. But that wasn't what I was looking for. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this principle. Okay? But after, see, this is how it works. It starts with a man, doesn't it? Every movement starts with an obedient man. We, see, we saw Jesus Christ was this man. But more importantly, we see Peter was this man. Peter was the catalyst for a movement. It started with the obedience of a man, and it became a movement. You understand? And then that movement is always in danger of becoming a machine. Think about the history of the church. How often have we seen churches, local churches, who were started by a man that became a movement and then eventually became a machine? Robotic. Robotic in their execution, focused on practice and and institutionalization right setting in course processes for every little thing right discipleship doesn't is no longer about investing or mentoring other people it's a booklet it's a program you understand but what always happens to a movement is they become what eric you remember this principle what does a movement always become I mean a machine. What does a machine become? Ah, good, good man. A machine always becomes a monument. And eventually what happens is the Christians stand around and they talk about how awesome it used to be. That's what happens. That's what happens. And if we're going to avoid that, if we're going to avoid that in our ministry, then we need to continue to focus on the things that God has called us to do and to be. We have to do that. We have to grow fervent. We have to beat that drum. Now, look at what commonality among the brethren reaps. Okay, look at verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, 
and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. I mean, that's, that sounds pretty radical to me. So, so what we see here is a giving people. Now listen to me. Not just tithings and offerings, but sacrificial giving. Giving beyond comfort. Giving that knew no bounds. You know, many of us here are familiar with, with the term tithe, right? And some of you are maybe going to, at some point in discipleship, learn more about this. Okay, but the tithe, the tithe represents 10%. 10% of what I make, of my gross income, is already set aside as belonging to God. Now, why do I do that? Well, because it's taught to me throughout the entirety of Scripture. It's taught to me throughout God's Word. It's taught to me in Deuteronomy chapter 26. It's taught to me in Malachi uh, chapter 3 verse 10. And in a ton of passages. We learn about offerings in Scripture. Exodus 25, 1 and 2. And both of these are institutions that are reaffirmed throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Okay? And if you, if you have squabbles about that, we should talk about that face to face. One-on-one. I don't have time to belabor it. I will say this, that the New Testament supports the tithe in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the first week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. See, this passage is a direct reference to the tithe that was instituted in Deuteronomy chapter 26. The Jew was, uh, was to deliver the first part, the first one-tenth, or the first fruits of their harvest to God. They belonged to him. Now, by the time the apostles come on the scene, this, was, this concept was taken for granted. Right? All of the Jews did it. And when the church was born, they continued to do it. They continued to live it. They continued to do it. The tithe, is, if we're, we're honest, is buckshot throughout the entirety of the New Testament. The principles are scattered throughout the entirety of the New Testament. The doctrine of the tithe does not diminish in one iota, but what we see change is the culture of giving in the New Testament. It begins to change. There's a type of giving that goes beyond the norm. And this is one of personal sacrifice. Sacrifice becomes much more important to the culture of giving for the New Testament believer. Let's look at this example in the church of Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul's talking to the church and he says, Now ye Philippi, uh, Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica... Ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God uh, shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is, You Philippians, you gave to me above and beyond what was necessary. What was comfortable for you to do. You went above and beyond the tithe. And the giving to the church, you chose to give to me. And to provide for my needs. And I know that that was uncomfortable for you. And when you did that, that was a sweet savor before God. Just as the Old Testament sacrifice was. It was a sweet savor to God. The same testimony of the Philippians exists in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond, beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, 
but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Now listen to me. What's happening here is that, that Paul is bragging about the Macedonian church, which, which is where Philippi was. He's bragging about the Macedonian church to the church in Corinth, saying that for them to give this way was very, very difficult because they were impoverished. They actually didn't have enough money to meet their own needs, and yet they were willing to give beyond what was comfortable that others who they believed were in greater need might be taken care of. In Philippi, just like in Acts chapter 2, and we see here in 4, the believers were taking their possessions and they were dividing them. They were selling their stuff so that they might provide for others who they believed had greater need. Now, I've heard, uh, in fact, and even in Marxist writings, this is discussed as being a communist ideal right here. What we see in early Acts is like a justification for communism. But I want to say something. Uh, you know, communism is something that's imposed by a government. Sacrificial giving is something that's imposed by the movement and the stirring of the Holy Spirit. and cannot just be conjured up or forced. You understand? Sacrificial giving is unique, which leads us to key point number two. For those who have all things common, it doesn't say, I missed have right there, just FYI. I know that some of you are going to be distracted by that. Your pastor has a typo. I'm not perfect, okay? <laughs> For those who have all things common, it is only natural that we would sacrifice for one another. In my own life, I've experienced this just recently. We had a hard time uh, financially. as, as uh, We had our HVAC go out. We had car problems. Our lawnmower died, like all in one week period. And without me saying or begging or anything, uh, this ministry pitched in together and gave us cash that covered uh, fixing and replacing our HVAC unit. And I've never, I've never experienced anything like that in all of my ministry years. In 36 years of being alive, I've never seen uh, love uh, or felt love poured out um, like you guys did uh, when you came together that way. And, um, you know, <clears throat> that, that was powerful for me. It was very, very powerful for me. That was sacrificial on your part, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. But I know that you guys do this for one another on a daily basis, and I've been a partaker of that. Uh, we pool our resources. We come together. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our money. We sweat for one another. We work for one another. And if we forget that, and if we stop doing that, then I will say that we're going to lose something. We're going to lose something. But I will say this also, that if we, if we have all things common, and if we continue to prioritize the things that Jesus Christ would have us to prioritize, sacrificial giving will not feel sacrificial. It might be uncomfortable, but it will feel reasonable. Just like Romans chapter 12 describes. To be a living sacrifice is only reasonable. And if we are prioritizing one another, if we are loving one another the way that we ought to love one another, then giving to one another will feel obvious. It will feel self-evident. What we see in Acts chapter 4 is we see a heart and a mind to put others over our own needs. Again, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Listen, verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So here's the key question for you. Okay, here's a key question. You ready? 
Do you truly have a heart of sacrifice for the brethren? Honestly. Have you ever sacrificed for this church, for this ministry in a way that felt uncomfortable for you to do? Where it was just, it puts you out. Where you put other people ahead of you and your agenda. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, you're missing out. You're missing out. You're missing out on the love and the fellowship and ultimately the furtherance of the gospel. Now we got a, a really good example here as the story continues in verse 36. We're, uh, we're faced here with a man named Barnabas who's our example, right? We're going to refer to him as the patron, just meaning that he chose to give. He chose to give to the ministry. Verse 36. And, and Joseph, by the apostles, was named Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we, here we have our first introduction to Barnabas. Uh, the man that we'll later see um, does ministry ex- exploits with Paul. Same guy, right? Um, we're going to see him a lot. And uh, we learn that his name was Joseph. Now, the, the name Joseph means exalted. His name means exalted. But what was really common among the apostles and among really the, the 70 disciples that were the most tight-knit brethren was it was common for them to change their name when they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. A good example of that is Saul, right? Saul became Paul, didn't he? And lots of believers would change their name in order to signify a difference from the old man to the new man. It's very common. And Joseph here, the name means to be exalted. He was a Levite. He was a man of the priestly tribe. And perhaps, we don't know this, perhaps he was even a part of the religious order during this time. We don't know. Either way, upon his conversion, he changes his name to Barnabas, meaning the son of consolation. Consolation is just a nice big word for rest. Now, I think it's really interesting here. This is just a side note. I mean, I would much rather be at rest in the Father's strength than exalted on my own. And I think it's super important in terms of cluing us in to what Barnabas does here is that he's not afraid to die to self. He's not afraid to give things up. Why? Because he's at rest in the Father's arms. He knows who he is. He's not afraid to sacrifice. He knows that God will always provide for him. He will always be provided for. This record here in Acts is pro- it's probably here for many different reasons. Okay? But the most obvious one is is just that we might have his testimony in contrast to the testimony that we're about to see. So here's the next question for you. When you give sacrificially, what is your objective and to what end do you give? Now this is a leading question because what I want to point out is that Barnabas gave and sacrificed Not only so that the church would have need of nothing, but so that he could walk away from everything to pursue an apostolic ministry. In other words, he became a missionary. He became a missionary. He gave up everything with an objective in mind. So the question is when you give sacrificially, what is your objective? To what end are you giving? Here we see a man that not only prefers the brethren over himself to the point that he gives up his financial well-being, but he abandons his entire life. He isn't just giving up his comforts. He is choosing heartache and suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, listen, I I get that this sounds really radical. I get it. And And I'm not suggesting that anybody 
like today go home and put their car on Craigslist and, right, and move into a cardboard box for the sake of the gospel. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is that when the Holy Spirit moves you to sacrifice, are you willing to do it? And when you are moved to sacrifice, what is your objective? Because what we're going to see is that the objective of Ananias and Sapphira was twisted. Their intents were different. Their desires were different. Now before we get into them, here's your key point. Sacrifice in every regard means the disregard of self for the utter regard of the gospel. Sacrifice. When we talk about sacrifice, in every regard to sacrifice, means that you completely disregard you. You does not exist. You is less significant. You are choosing to prefer others and the gospel over your comforts. So sacrifice in every regard means the disregard of self for the utter regard of the gospel, the furtherance of Christ. That's what sacrifice is. And if it's anything other than that, then it's dishonest and inauthentic. As in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. So stage left, chapter 5. We meet Ananias and Sapphira. A couple of young Christians who had witnessed firsthand the genuine sacrifice of the brethren. They were there. They saw it going on. They saw people selling their stuff, bringing it to the apostles and say, this is, this is for the gospel. This is for the gospel. They saw that sacrifice taking place. They witnessed it. They saw it firsthand what it meant to have true community. And they felt the love that surrounded all of their friends. They would have certainly heard about Barnabas' great sacrifice. And it was, they would have seen the adoration that he received for his beautiful gift. Don't you think? If people knew that Barnabas did that, that people would go to him and say thank you, right? And, and he would receive some level of adoration, even whether he wanted that or desired it, desired it or not. You know, one of the coolest things in ministry is when people give and no one knows who it is. That you give and you sacrifice and, and, and no one even knows that it was ever you that did it. That's one way of protecting your heart against pride. But perhaps they knew that Barnabas had sacrificed in this way and they saw the adoration that he may have received. So Ananias and Sapphira begin to develop a plan where they could give to the church receive the applause of their brethren and yet never have truly sacrificed. Verse 1. Are you guys with me? You guys seem really out of it. I'm not sure if you're catching all this. Maybe it's just a very sober morning and you're just focused. I can't tell. Verse 1. Let's read this story. It's tough. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it, so they both knew, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So in other words, they had, conv- they had convinced the church elders that they are giving everything, that they, when they sold this thing, all of the money that came from selling this possession, they were bringing it all before the apostles. Okay? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. He died. And great fear came upon all, uh, came on all of them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up, which was common to bind up a person, the person's body, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the same space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in and Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. So she lied too. She's complicit. 
Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and, and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon, uh, upon as many as heard these things. Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> that was for Jake. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we read this story. If we're honest with ourselves as Christians, we read this story. And we ask ourselves, was the Lord too harsh here? Anybody ever read this and thought that? If you're honest with yourself... You know, our logic tells us that this is kind of an extreme outcome. (laughs) But here's the deal. Honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, the only reason we would respond with shock to this story is because, A, we don't understand how much God hates hypocrisy and liars. The only reason we would respond with shock to this story is because we don't truly understand how much God hates hypocrites and lying tongues. If you want God's perspective on hypocrisy, just review Matthew Matthew 24. Take a moment and read Matthew 24 and find out what God says about hypocrites. O ye hypocrites shows up something like eight or nine times in that chapter. You know, hypocrisy is the spirit of the religious order. The nature of humankind that can deny the Messiah to his face and yet still occupy the pew on a Sunday. That's what hypocrisy is. Someone that has no problem disobeying day to day but still sits in that pew. You know, God is setting an example here that liars and hypocrites will have no influence on his church. Job 34 says that that hypocrites reign not, lest the people be ensnared. Proverbs 11.9 says, An hypocrite with his mouth destroyeth his neighbor, but through knowledge shall the just be delivered. Listen, this is what God is saying. This is what he's saying to Ananias and Sapphira, and this is what he's saying to the whole church. My son didn't die so that you would respect people more than you fear me. I didn't send my son into this world to bleed out and suffer and die and raise again so that you would be concerned about whether or not people pour out accolades on you. I did it so you would fear my name. The other reason we might be shocked by this story is B, we are Ananias and Sapphira holding back on God. You might be shocked by this story because actually you relate to them. You've been holding back. You haven't been willing to give everything. We love our money and time and resources more than we love to obey God. We are idolatrous over our possessions. We give with a desire to receive in return. We prefer ourselves over other people. We are performing our Christianity rather rather than living it. We are searching for accolades. We are desirous of vain glory. We are oblivious to God's all-seeing eye. We don't think He sees what we do or think. And above all, we do not fear God. So I hate to break the news to you, but key point four goes something like this. God desires our fear as much as He desires our friendship. God desires our fear 
as much as He desires our friendship. You don't have to be a theologian to figure out that God wants our fear. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, God calls us to fear Him. And yet somehow along the way, in our desire to make the gospel more palatable, we have castrated from Christianity this idea of fear. We've taken it away. And we focused the, the primacy of our thought on, the, on friendship with God. And I want to break the news to you. That God, the one that created all things and sustains all things with His very breath and has the future planned out, deserves your fear. Our, our God deserves the type of reverence that acknowledges that He made all things. And that He has the right to do anything that He wants. And you don't necessarily get a say in that. The very act of prayer goes way beyond what we deserve in our relationship with God. And so when we approach Him, and we approach His people, we ought to do so with fear and trembling, knowing that He hates hypocrites and liars. Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Do you have fear? Do you have fear for God? What are you holding on to that would tempt the chastening of God? That's a question for you. What is it that you're holding on to in your life? You're, you're lying to yourself. And you're telling yourself, well, God doesn't want this. Certainly, certainly this thing I get to keep for myself. Certainly, God. You don't want this. And all the while, you know you're lying. It could be repentance. It could be money. It could be time. It could be a career. Just any false idol you can fit in that blank. What are you holding back that is inviting the chastening of God? Are you in a season right now where you recognize there's a little bit of hypocrisy in your life? Now here's the question. Will you respond with the open hand of a Barnabas? Or will you respond with the white knuckles of Ananias and Sapphira? Will you willingly give up your pride and the things you think you deserve in order to be faithful? I mean, listen to me, guys. Let's be real for a second. I've stick, stuck pretty close to my notes today. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a sidebar here. Some of you in here aren't faithful. And you're pretending to be. And God sees it. And you've got every excuse why you can't lean in. Why you can't be radical the way we talk about in here. And ultimately, I have no say in that. But God does. He sees and He knows. And you can only remain a hypocrite so long before you get found out and exposed. And I pray to God when that day comes that God will be merciful towards you. But at the same time, we might all fear God more because of it. We need to fear the Lord. And at the end of the day, Ananias and Sapphira, they must not really have been a part of the community. They didn't have all things common or they would have never done this. They had forgotten who God had called them to be. And many of you, the reason that you are holding on to things and you're not giving up and you're not making sacrifice the way that you should is because you haven't bought in 
You haven't, you haven't made this church family your own. And that's a decision that you make. You get to make that decision. Every day that you breathe, you get to make that decision. Are you going to be a part of what God's doing or not? This is a very sober message. I should have worked more jokes in. I apologize. But at the end of the day, I I really want us to confront this issue. Because if we're living like hypocrites, it it will harm the ministry. Let's stop tiptoeing along the line. And let's let go. All right, worship team, will you come up? Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. And uh, we thank you for your word, even when it's hard. And Lord, right now, I would pray that, that Lord, as the worship team's coming up, a lot of us are checking out uh, because, well, it's more convenient to do so. Lord, I ask that you would draw hearts in and you would help us to look inward. That we would see our hearts. That we would analyze our minds. That we would be objective. And that we would ask ourselves, is there anything that I'm holding on to that would prevent me from being a part of what God's doing? Am I truly willing to sacrifice? Am I really willing to give for the sake of the brethren? Do I prefer myself over others? Lord, help help us to take stock of the things that we steward. How bought in are we? What does the Great Commission really mean to our lives? What does it mean for me to disciple? What does it mean for me to evangelize? What does it mean for me to give up time and energy and resources to do the things that you've called me to do? Lord, what does it mean? Help us to see things as they truly are the way you see them. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.